I don't know if you guys are familiar with a guy named Tim Keller, but he's a, he's a pretty well-known pastor and theologian, Christian apologist. He wrote this article in Relevant Magazine a while back called Why Christmas Matters. And this is what he wrote. He said, if Jesus didn't come, the story of Christmas is one more moral paradigm to crush you. If Jesus didn't come, I wouldn't want to be anywhere around these Christmas stories that say we should be sacrificing or that we need to be humble or that we need to be loving. All that will do is crush you into the ground. But if Jesus Christ is actually God come in the flesh, you're going to want to know as much as you can about him. If Jesus is who he says he is, And we have this 500-page autobiography from God, in a sense, that we need to read. And our understanding will be vastly more personal and specific than any philosophy or religion could give us. Because Christmas, look at what God has done to get you to know him personally. If the Son would come all this way to become a real person to you, don't you think the Holy Spirit will do anything in his power to make Jesus a real person in your heart. Christmas is an invitation by God. Look what I have done to come near to you. Now draw near to me. I don't understand, excuse me, I don't want to be a concept. I want to be a friend. There's so many things Christmas bring to mind, such as angels, Baking, blessings, bells, candles, charity, Christmas, tr- Christmas trees, and even coal for those that seem to make the naughty list. I'm looking at you, Jim. Oh. But what about as it relates to God? What are some of the things Christmas should remind us of? And today we're going to look at several of those things as found in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17. Just before we jump in, though, I'll just give you just a quick overview. First Timothy is the Apostle Paul's first epistle or letter to Timothy, who was essentially a pastor in training. And one of the things Paul encourages Timothy to do right in the beginning of this letter is to guard against false doctrines. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, Paul writes to Timothy, Remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. One source defines false doctrine as any idea that adds to, takes away from, contradicts, or nullifies the doctrine or the teachings in God's word. This is an important fact as we consider Christmas, because while there's nothing wrong with celebrating Christmas as it relates to our culture or to our customs, uh, which vary from person to person or place to place, we have to remember that as Christians, we don't want to do the things that cause problems. We don't want to do the things that don't help people live a life of faith in God. And what I mean by that is that there's a lot of reasons people celebrate Christmas, and that's okay. We shouldn't judge people for that. But we as Christians, we have to ask ourselves, why are we celebrating Christmas? 
And at the end of the day, the answer to that question is to glorify God. Whether, therefore, ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. And with that in mind, open your Bibles up to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Paul says, This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. The first and most crucial thing Christmas should remind us of is that God is faithful. He is true to his word. And that when he says he's going to do something, he does it. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah foretold the coming of God into the world when he said, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah seven fourteen. God reveals through the prophet that he would send a sign, a baby boy, through a virgin woman or by way of a miracle birth, and that he would be called Emmanuel which is a masculine Hebrew name, meaning God with us or God is with us. Some believe the baby Isaiah was talking about was one born during the time of King Ahaz as a sign to Judah that they would be saved from the attacks by Israel and Syria and that they may, and that that, that, that may be. But if we fast forward 700 years and we look and we notice in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, before Mary lost her virginity, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth the Son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God said that he would send a Savior into the world through the miracle of a virgin birth. And then he did that exact thing. When he, Emmanuel, came into the world, God is with us. Christmas should remind us that God is steadfast in his affections for us, and he keeps his promises. He is a faithful God. And he not only did come into the world as promised, he came into the world for a very specific reason, for a very specific purpose, to save sinners, of whom the Apostle Paul says of himself is a chief sinner. Psalm 68 verses 19 and 20 say, Praise the Lord, praise God, our Savior. For each day he carries us in his arms. Our God is a God who saves. 
The sovereign Lord rescues us from death. And for those of you who don't know or didn't catch it and are wondering just what sinners need to be saved from, the Lord rescues sinners from death. As the Apostle Paul said, even he who was a far better Christian than most, one who through the Holy Spirit's inspiration wrote a lot of the New Testament, was a chief sinner and in need of saving, in need of being rescued from death. And just to be clear, this death that God is saving us from is an eternal death, one that lasts forever. And the unfortunate reality is that all people need to be saved from this eternal death because we, like the Apostle Paul, have rebelled against God and we've chosen to sin instead of be obedient to him. And therefore, we are destined for death, unable to save ourselves. Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Enmity against God means being hostile towards God. Our sinful minds are hostile towards God, and we are in need of being saved because of that hostility. Therefore, Christmas should remind us that God is faithful. He is a faithful God, and he is a saving God. And as the Apostle Paul says, this faithful saying is worthy of all acceptance, because we are all sinners. We are all in trouble, but God is faithful. He made a promise and he delivered on Christmas Day the gift of all gifts. His son, Jesus Christ, the one who could save us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The famous British writer named Clive Staples, Lewis or C.S. Lewis once said, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Christmas should remind us that our Heavenly Father is faithful and has provided salvation for his children. Notice, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. The Apostle Paul understood himself to be a sinner, as all people are, and even considered himself a chief sinner, as I stated before. And he explained that it was because of this that he obtained mercy from God. The God of the Bible, the Christian God, is a God of mercy. We understand mercy to be compassion or forgiveness toward a person who deserves to be punished. It's a withholding of punishment. The Bible is filled with examples of mercy. And one example of God's mercy is found in Luke 23, verses 34. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, he made a plea for mercy. Not for himself, but for us. Remember, the people had just shouted him down saying, crucify him, crucify him. 
He was beaten and battered, spit on and condemned. He was condemned even over the known murderer, Barabbas. Taken to Calvary, nailed to a cross to die in an excruciating death. And after all that abuse, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We have all sinned against God. We have all turned our backs on the creator of life and become disobedient. And because of that, we deserve to be punished. We deserve to be separated from God forever in hell. But instead, he offers us forgiveness in place of punishment. He is a God of mercy. And that mercy, that forgiveness only happened because of the sacrifice made by God himself on the cross. One article I read by Rodney Stark in The Triumph of Christianity, which is titled, Jesus' Birth Unleashed a Movement of Mercy, said this, In the midst of the squalor, misery, illness, and um, animity of, of ancient cities, Christianity provided an island of mercy and security. It started with Jesus. In contrast, in the pagan world, and especially among the philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect and pity as a pathological emotion because mercy involves providing unearned help or relief. It is contrary to justice. Thus, humans must learn to curb the impulse to show mercy. The cry of the undeserving for mercy must go unanswered, showing mercy was a defect of character unworthy of the wise and excusable only in those who have not yet grown up. This was the moral climate in which Christianity taught that a merciful God requires humans to be merciful. Jesus Christ was born on Christmas. And Christmas should remind us, it should remind the world, that the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, is a faithful God and a saving God and a merciful God. However, for this reason, the Apostle Paul says, I obtained mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. God's mercy towards sinners has demonstrated that he does not succumb to circumstances. There is nothing that you have done or nothing that you are doing or nothing that you will do that will cause God to be quick-tempered. He has demonstrated what it means to be long-suffering. One source said a long-suffering person does not immediately retaliate or punish. Rather, he has a long fuse and patiently forbears. In a legal sense, God is refraining from exercising his legitimate right to enforce his wrath. He has given people the opportunity to right their wrongs and to turn from their wickedness. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. God does not have to be patient with us. He chooses to be because he loves us and he wants us to recognize who we are and who he is and to turn back to him to repent. While it may not always seem obvious, repentance is a gift. It is a gift from God that highlights his patience 
for a broken people. Once we understand this concept, we can, as Paul stated, become a pattern to others who are going to believe in God for eternal life. And we all know this is difficult. Practicing patience is important. And so I just want to give you three quick ways that it might help you to become better at practicing patience. First, we have to be thankful during difficult times. We have to be thankful during difficult times. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. This is one of the most difficult concepts for people to grasp. We have to be grateful, even in our suffering and in our hardships, not because we want to be good at hurting or appear to be little Christian rocks, unbreakable, but because this is God's will for us. That as we go through the hard times, we can increase in patience which makes us more like him and more able to help others. Second, we have to cooperate with God. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. God has provided us with a helper as we move through this world, and we have to become more sensitive to his promptings and more willing to listen to God as he speaks truth to us through the Holy Spirit and his holy word, the Bible, so we can be more like him and helpful to others. And third, we have to learn from those who are patient. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We have each other believers who are at various points in our spiritual walk and we can provide help as we struggle help to look back on Jesus as we go through the fire help through encouraging each other to pray as we go through the fire and help to remind us that we are not alone as we go through the fire and that we will make it through as they have and that when they do when we do, we will become more patient. We will be the example for others, as some of them have been for us, and as Jesus has been for us. And so the next time someone treats you poorly, be thankful. The next time God prompts you, cooperate with them. And the next time you talk to another Christian, try to learn something from them, so that we can be more like him and helpful to each other. Christmas should remind the world that not only is the God of the Bible a faithful God, the God of Christianity a saving God, and our God a merciful and patient God, but Christmas should remind the world to honor and glorify a king. Notice 1 Timothy 1.17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, 
To God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, the Apostle Paul was saved by the Lord. And in Psalm 10, 16, we read that the Lord is king forever and ever. And therefore, Paul gives the king all his praise. This is called a doxology or an expression of praise to God. Many times this is done through hymns or worship, or in this case, Paul was writing it out to Timothy. The word doxology comes from the Greek word doxa, which means glory or splendor. And logos, which means word or speaking. You're likely familiar with the hymn known as the greater doxology, Gloria in excelsis Deo, which in Latin means glory to God in the highest. Used in the famous Christmas song, Angels We Have Heard on High. Or in the Latin text of the lesser doxology, which is translated as glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Which, as you can tell, is a praise of God and a declaration of the three persons of the Trinity. One source said that another commonly heard doxology is praise God from whom all blessings flow, which was written in 1647 by Thomas Ken, a priest in the Church of England. The familiar words are, praise God from whom all blessings flow, Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Christmas should remind us that it was not just a baby born on that day, but the King of Kings. Worthy of all honor and glory. Worthy of our doxologies. And the Apostle Paul names four attributes our king has that we should remember this Christmas season. Remember, Paul says, now to the king eternal. Eternity is sometimes a difficult thing to understand. And so we try to sum it up by saying something like without end or beginning, lasting or existing forever. So in short, we might say the God of the Bible, the king of glory, is a king that has always existed and always will. He is without beginning and without end. This is very important because could you imagine giving your life to one that is not eternal? Or someone that may only last for a little while? There would be no security in that. You see, because our king is an eternal king, we can rest assured that the redemption we have in Christ Jesus will result in an eternal benefit. One that we call eternal life. John 10, 28 and 30 through 30. And I, meaning Jesus, give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. I and my father are one. This is one of the primary reasons we should be filled with so much joy and sing songs at Christmas time. Because it is a reminder that we have been saved 
for an eternity in heaven and that nothing can change that. Romans 8, 38, 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christmas should remind the world of an eternal king. An eternal king. Next, Paul attributes immortality to the king. And this is an interesting concept. And At first, you might ask, what is the difference between eternal life and immortality? And simply put, there is a huge difference. Immortality is simply living forever, never dying or decaying. This is something we know of God in that when Jesus was crucified on the cross, his human body died. His soul or his being did not die. He is immortal. And as the Bible depicts, he later ascended back into heaven. We as humans are also immortal. And as the Bible depicts, excuse me, not in a physical sense, our bodies will die, but our souls will continue much as Jesus did. However, this is the big question. What happens after we die? This question is more about the quality of our existence. And this is the distinction between immortality and and eternity. Everyone is immortal in a spiritual sense, but not everyone will experience being with God or experience eternal life, which is reserved only for those who have accepted Jesus as their savior. 1 Corinthians 2:9, eye has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And those that reject God or reject his Christmas gift of Jesus will instead have eternal death. This is essentially being separated from God forever. Still alive, still immortal, but not in heaven, rather in hell. The quantity of existence is immortality. God has always been immortal. We became immortal at conception. And the quality of existence is eternal life or eternal death. The Apostle Paul honors the king of eternity and immortality. He is the king that always has been and always will be. The sustainer of life. And we should be reminded of that on Christmas when God came into the world to offer our immortal souls the opportunity to be with him forever. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here's another attribute Paul mentions, the invisible king. The invisible king, the king that is not visible or that is not able to be seen. Why does Paul add this to his praise, to his doxology, to his spontaneous burst of prayer, uh, praise? Hebrews eleven twenty seven says that by faith, he, meaning Moses, forsook Egypt, 
not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Remember the story of Moses. He was hidden as a child for fear he would be killed. And as it turned out, Moses ended up not being killed, but rather became the son of Pharaoh's daughter, living a life of privilege and without wanting. But eventually, he gave all that up to suffer with God's people. He said no to riches. He said no to treasures. And by faith, he forsook Egypt and God's people for God's people as though he had seen God. By faith, Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. Not being able to see the king with our eyes, but still acting with confidence in our hope of the king is what develops our faith, just as was the case with Moses. One source said that faith causes us to act on what we haven't experienced yet, to believe promises in the Bible that haven't been fulfilled yet, and to trust God when our situations haven't changed yet. While we know that God exists just simply based on the evidences that surround us, the fact that we cannot see him physically allows us to develop our faith, which throughout history has produced some of the most amazing people, such as Moses. And it is what drives people to accept the Christmas gift of Jesus Christ. As Ephesians 2.8 states, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Christmas should remind us that faith is a form of God's grace. It's something that we get to do, but don't deserve to do. It is a gift from God. And finally, Paul states that this eternal king, that this immortal king, and that this invisible king is alone wise, or is the only one with godly wisdom. According to the Bible, there are two types of wisdom. There is earthly wisdom and there is godly wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. According to this passage, earthly wisdom is to want what other people want, or to want what other people have, and then to resent them for it, or to have bitter envy. Earthly wisdom promotes thinking of yourself before others, or to be self-seeking. All of these things, according to James, are not from above, or associated with godly wisdom. They are earthly, or human and sinful, sensual, or only for self-gratification or desire, and demonic, meaning things that have the characteristics of demons or evil spirits. That's what earthly wisdom looks like. Selfish humans sinning and resembling demons. 
But the wisdom that comes from above, James says, is first pure, meaning that God's wisdom is free of any contamination. It is pure and it is 100% perfect. That's only possible with God. 24 karat gold, for example, is only 99.95% pure, which is considered the best. The wisdom from God is greater than the best gold. Proverbs 16, 16, how much better to get wisdom than gold? God's wisdom is not wanting to have conflicts or arguments, but rather it's peaceable. It's not wanting to be rude or disrespectful or aggressive or vulgar, but rather it's being gentle and willing to give way to pressure or willing to yield to God. He is right and we are wrong. The wisdom from God is full of mercy and of good fruits without partiality and hypocrisy. Remember, mercy means to not give someone what they deserve. If someone cuts you off while driving, try not to flip them off. If someone needs help, then just help them, regardless of who they are or what they might do for you in return. Apologize for situations that aren't always your fault. Remember, Jesus Christ came in the world to save us from death, and there is no way to repay him for that. He didn't come to save only the good. But everyone, regardless of who they are or what they have done, he's worked in all of our lives when no one else would. He's withheld punishment for our rebellion, and he's been gentle and he's been peaceable with us despite our sinfulness. Christmas should remind us and should remind the world that the King of Kings is eternal, he's immortal. He's invisible and he's wise and we should trust him. He has an endless resume. He knows everything. He has done everything. He's even chosen to create people that we don't like. After listening, listen, listening, <clears throat> After listing those attributes of the king of kings, Paul's doxology concludes with this. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. For those of you who may not know what honor means, in this case, it is simply to have high respect for the king or great esteem. It means to adhere to God's standard of conduct, to become his servant and not that of the world. The first part of Luke 16, 13 says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and dispose of the other. And glory in its most simplistic meaning is to show great admiration for someone who deserves it. Our king did not give up on us. Our king did not stand idly by while we plunged ourselves into the darkness. He came to save us from that death. He alone deserves our admiration. Revelation 5, 13 and 14, And every creature which is in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb forever and ever. So be it. The famous Charles Spurgeon once said, If we honor God, we honor us. And if we despise him, we shall lightly esteemed ourselves. Christmas may have taken on different forms over the generations. But most recently in our society, it has been largely commercialized to make money and to sell products and goods and services. It's been mixed with fairy tales of fat men in red suits flying across the sky in one night to deliver toys to the children of the world. It sometimes makes people feel good as they give to others or bless the ones that they love. Personally, I love to watch kids open up presents and see their eyes light up when they get their new things. And I like to watch them enjoy them. I love Christmas songs. Even Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the ones that are goofy. They're nonsensical. I enjoy them. I like buying gifts for my loved ones, and I love going to Christmas Eve church services with candles, and I get to see all the wonderful people that I care for so much. Sometimes I get emotional over the people that I love and are no longer with me. I sometimes wish that things were different. I sometimes wish that I would be happier if they were like they used to be. But then I remember that Christmas is not supposed to be about me. Christmas is supposed to remind us about our faithful God who made promises and kept them. Christmas is supposed to remind us about a God who saves his children, of whom I am one. Christmas is supposed to remind us that God is a merciful God. And through his intervention has postponed sentencing me to death and instead given me a Christmas gift, a gift of eternal life. Christmas is supposed to remind us that our God is patient and has been waiting for people to repent for a very long time. Christmas is supposed to remind us that Jesus Christ is the eternal, immortal, invisible, wise King of Kings who is owed all our honor and glory. Christmas is not about me and it's not about you. It's not about what I want or what the world wants. It's about him. It's about God. It should remind us about God above everything else. And it should remind us how much he loves us and how much he has done for us so that we might know him forever. I read this passage from Searching for Christmas, a book by J.D. Greer and the good book company titled Finding the True God at Christmas. Christmas is the season of choice. If you want to buy a food processor, Amazon offers 2,000 types. Or how about a drill? There are more than 40,000 options. No, I'm not making those numbers up. Choices can be glorious and confusing and empowering and overwhelming all at the same time. And in the West today, it looks as though it is the same with God. There's a huge array of deities to choose from, including the no to all option. 
walk through an airport or shopping mall anywhere and you will be walking past countless people who believe in no God. Plenty of people who believe that there are many gods and another great multitude who believe in one God but who have very different thoughts on what that one God is like and what he or she or it thinks. For some, God is kind of a distant grandfather guy looking down benevolently and wanting us to be happy. To others, God is a harsh taskmaster counting up your good and bad actions and weighing up whether he's going to have mercy on you in the end. To others, God is an impersonal force that would the universe that wound the universe up and is now off doing other stuff while we get on with it down here. To others, God is the universe. There are so many options to choose from. It's empowering and overwhelming. And at the same time, how do you know? How can you choose? And what does it even matter? Isaiah's claim was that the baby who would be born at the first Christmas would be mighty God. For all that Israel needed, for all that they lacked, for all that they could never be in themselves, they had God, the great I am, the mighty God, a purifying, ever-present, shepherding, providing, healing, defending God. And so this Christmas season, I propose that we not lend any idea that adds to, takes away from, contradicts, or nullifies the doctrine given in God's word. This Christmas season, we should honor and glorify our king while remembering what Christmas is all about, and that is of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Without Jesus, we could never know eternal life. Without your loving sacrifice, we could never know you. Without your amazing gift on Christmas, we would have only death. You have provided for us everything that we need to know you and to restore our relationship with you. And I pray this Christmas season, Lord, that you would be glorified and honored by our worship of you. Help us to love you more. Help us to understand and help us to love each other. In Jesus' name, amen.